0: Hey everyone, welcome to Speculative Work. I'm James Aaron and this is my science fiction author's diary where I share what I've been thinking about for the past week, things I've learned, and mistakes I've made. So hopefully you won't make them too. It is currently 12.52 a.m. and I'm going to record this podcast. Dang it. Um, I've been putting this off for a long time. I've tried to record several times and things keep getting in the way from trains to... Dudes that want to sit in a parking lot and run the motorcycle for thirty minutes while I'm trying to record during my lunch break. Um, so <laughs> tonight it's just a matter of not getting enough sleep, and that's fine. Um, but this is uh, something I've wanted to I want to do. So here we go. A uh, couple things I want to talk about during this episode. Uh, recently, I started reading slush submissions for a small publisher. Um, I haven't read slush for a long time. If you're not familiar with what that term means, slush is the unsolicited manuscripts that come into a publisher. So anytime somebody says, hey, I'm a publisher, and they post their email address, they start getting all kinds of stuff. And it's interesting. It's, it's actually really educational. Um, so I'm going to talk about that for a little bit. Like It's been a good refresher for me um, on some lessons learned from that. And then I also wanted to talk about a big kind of punch in the gut that I got. It's it's kind of been a slow burn, but it really came, uh, I guess, on the 8th of July, after the 4th of July weekend. Um, And it had a big effect on my writing, so I wanted to talk about that. Uh, But first, to cover some updates, so I think... Since my last podcast, um, Eve of Destruction has been published. That's my first book in the new Sentience Wars, Solar Wars 1 series. And that's a book I've been working on since last December. And it's been getting a great response. I'm really pleased with how people have been um, reading, enjoying the book. Um, Everything that I had kind of hoped about this book as far as it just like... I rewrote this book three times, the beginning of it anyway, and the whole time I kept asking myself, like, I would get to a point where if I didn't feel it was, like, had a lot of energy or I didn't feel like the characters were doing things that made sense, I would ask myself, like, is this kick-ass? Is this fun? Is this something I would want to read? And if it wasn't that, then I would go back and rewrite it, and yeah, it appears to be working out. So... It's currently not actually uh, sticking as well in the Amazon ranking as Lissa's Dream did, which was my first book in my first series. Um, Lissa's Dream stuck for a long time at like 16,000 in the Amazon store. And currently, um, of Destruction is at like 25,000. It keeps kind of floating around. But, you know, who knows? It's hard to tell without follow-on books in the series, like what's going to happen exactly. But... The reviews have just been great so i'm i'm really pleased about that so i'm not gonna you know complain about that <laughs> um uh other updates i was trying to write a story for an anthology that was focused on uh, mega structures that was hard science fiction and i just couldn't get it done i kind of realized that focusing on an idea wasn't just working for me and also the story needed to be between 3,000 and 5,000 words and I was having a really difficult time figuring out like a story with a character, you know, what's their problem that somehow involves a megastructure and if you're not familiar with that, a megastructure could be anything from like a Dyson sphere to a world ship to um you know some other giant thing in space that we aren't currently kind of used to experiencing you know um and it it just wasn't working so I finally kind of let that go <laughs> and it was in you know I kept trying to like do everything kind of by the numbers I if you're gonna write a 4,000 word short story for me that's okay if we're gonna break that into 500 word scenes that's eight scenes we've got not a lot of space to establish character, problem, setting and then do a little try fail cycle, you know, the character tries to do something and fails, you know, three times potentially until they succeed or they don't succeed, they move into a new world and it just wasn't coming together. But it was an interesting exercise in trying to set up a short story. So at least that was kind of useful. I wish I'd gotten something in there, but it wasn't meant to be. So, oh well. Um, <laughs> Other things I've been doing a lot of uh, is reading. So I read uh, or listened to and kind of alternated between reading and listening, which is what I do now, I think, between ebooks and then Audible. Uh, biggest book recently, Edge of Valor by Josh Hayes, which I have to say is one of the... So Josh published this book himself. Well, no, I, I take that back. Athon Publishing published this book. Um, it... It was a really interesting, like, as far as military science fiction goes for me, and it it's funny because, you know, I write military science fiction, but this book caught me in a way that other books really haven't. And I think it was really the, the thriller aspects of it. And so this was, I, I want to say, very much like a Tom Clancy kind of military thriller that you might read, um, you know, about current day politics. And it was a science fiction book, but it very much had its feet in kind of current settings in a way. It was sort of like taking current problems and current feelings, I think, that people who had probably served in the Middle East would understand and placing them in a galaxy far, far away. Um, but, so if you're a writer, I think this book is really interesting to read for a couple reasons. So it alternates first-person POVs, which is not easy to do. And a couple different you know writers um, have done that in different novels. Uh, some people like it, some don't. I think that with this, because of the military background, it actually, it worked for me because of a couple things. So the main, the main character is sort of an NCIS uh, sort of um, investigator who is going, who's trying to figure out what's ha- what happened with a marine mission gone bad. And so you start with, with that character and they're kind of your anchor throughout the story. And then, when you move to the first person POVs, it's almost like a found footage kind of thing where you're getting each person's, you know, in the moment description of what happened during that mission. And because Josh kind of leads into it with that third person POV to set the scene like, okay, here's the thing that happened, it went wrong, there's a mystery here because you want more information. Now, I'm going to tease you when I'm going to put you in the moment with that mission that actually happened. And so these things uh, unfurl in parallel, and it creates a really interesting tension between the main character and what they're trying to figure out. And then the reader has sometimes a little bit more information, sometimes not as much information as the main character. And it creates, like, I think a tension that really drives you through the story. And so I think from a writing perspective, a craft perspective, it's and also just a military science fiction story that I think tries something that a lot of MIL-SF doesn't try to do, which is an interesting, like sort of, I, w- I don't wanna say complicated plot, but a more challenging plot that is saying something about the way people perceive combat. Um, it was re- really interesting, like it's doing really interesting things. And it all drives to a point that then, sets things up for the second book in the series and while uh the big bad guy you know is it's it's not hard to recognize who that person is I think in the story the thing that was pulling me through was I was actually really interested and invested in the individual marines stories those individual uh, first person POVs and I just want to know what happened to them <laughs> like the thing is you know what happens to them but you want to know why and how it happened in the course of the story and so that was really interesting so i would highly recommend that to anybody um currently you know you can pick it up i think the ebook is inexpensive and then the audio is also like a really good deal i got i got it for like two dollars um i don't know if it's still going to be that much but even if that's not the case i think it's worth it's totally worth checking out because i feel like it this book does like pushes mill sf forward in a way that i'm really excited about because I think it's trying to do a few different things between how people experience combat, how there's the milieu, so that it's taking place in kind of a border planet, uh, a place that is in conflict between a, uh, I don't know, kind of a United States sort of entity, like a federal sort of entity and a empire. And it it is definitely not black and white. Like you, each aspect of those two entities have positive things that they can influence on the um, the world that they're trying to you know potentially take over because it's in this fringe area, and that is you know very very prescient, very relevant to what's going on today. And um, it was a, I don't know I really I really liked it. I thought it was very subtle in some of those things it was trying to do. And I'm I'm interested to see what happens. Um, with the with the further books so uh, I would recommend it so that's Edge of valor by Josh Hayes. Um, another book I've been reading or listening to is Lies of La Lamora by Scott Lynch, which is a book that I've had on my to be read to you know to read list for a long time and I'm enjoying the heck out of this book. It's super escapist. It is very much like the so I, I grew up with uh, Fritz Leiber. The uh, Fafford and the Gray Mauser, you know, very much fantasy that's kind of kind of driven forward by character and witty banter. And, you know, the world building is is awesome, but also kind of like a science fantasy world building that Fritz Leiber would do where he had kind of this multiverse thing happening and definitely wasn't afraid to insert uh, kind of a weird technology into his stories. And I think he really enjoyed playing with that. And so Scott Lynch is doing kind of the same thing with his world building, but every everybody just accepts that it's a fantasy story you know kind of a a 1400s venice kind of fantasy uh that is on an alien world (laughs) and and so you know these humans are living in a uh a city that's full of sort of alien um architecture and things like that but also like just a kick-ass fantasy story that is going as well and so super witty with the the dialogue the prose is just so much fun like a lot of internal jokes and sort of self-referencing i mean he basically creates this world and then uses it um both in its language and its presentation to just make some really funny set pieces in um as the story progresses and i'm only halfway through it but i'm just super enjoying it i mean it's the kind of book that you almost don't want it to end like you know the thing about listening on audio is some sometimes you're there and sometimes you're not this is a book definitely that I have rewound and listened to parts that I thought I missed because it's just that, it's that good, you know? Um, so I'm really enjoying that. I'm ha- more than halfway through and it's gonna be kind of a bummer when it ends, but it's funny because I'd already been looking at like, okay, I have the scene to buy the next book in the series and let's figure out how to do that. So I <laughs> found myself doing that at work today. So highly recommended there. Um, Other things that have been happening. So one of the sort of obstacles, you know, the punch in the gut that I mentioned is so, so I think I mentioned in previous podcasts that I started a business back in 2010, which was a craft distillery. And there was a movement in Oregon in particular to encourage craft distilleries. And one of the problems with the craft distilleries is they get taxed. Like crazy. (laughs) And, you know, I did my math. I thought that we could make money, and it turned out that we couldn't. And so I left that business in 2013 when it was really clear to me that we were not going to make money. And I was not comfortable progressing with a business where it was obvious to me we weren't going to make money. I didn't like owing people money. I didn't like going to new people and asking them to invest in the business when I wasn't convinced that it was going to make money. And so my partner and I split ways, and he continued with the business, and it continued to exist for another you know, six six years, basically. Well, I got a weird collections notice in May that was, I, I really didn't know what it was, and they wanted you know a little bit more than $20,000 from me. And I'm kind of used to getting collections notices from my former business partner, uh, because he doesn't view paying things the way that I do. And so I kind of know the deal, like if you get a collections notice, you need to send a verification request and, you know, they have to provide you proof, basically, that you owe the money. And this one came back with a document from the uh, Alcohol, Tobacco, Tax and Trade Bureau, the TTB, as they're called, which is a federal entity, with a document that I had signed back in 2010 saying that I owed, basically, that I had... I had signed that I would cover the bond for excise tax on the business. And back in 2013, I had I had my cor- correspondence I had sent to the TTB, you know, saying that, hey, I'm leaving the business, please tell me what I need to do to properly extricate myself from the situation. I thought they had provided me everything that I needed to do, but apparently they had not told me that I needed to take care of this insurance thing. <laughs> and you would think that six years go by and like, If somebody's going to continue with the business, they need to cover this themselves, but that's not the case. So basically, I was on the hook for a bond for the excise tax for the business. And if you're not familiar with how it works with alcohol in the United States, like this is kind of a throwback to prohibition even, but if you were making alcohol and you're going to sell it, you have to pay excise tax to the federal government and state tax, but that's kind of processed through a different mechanism. The concept basically is the government sort of extends you credit when you have that excise tax. So if you sell, you know, one bottle of vodka that you're gonna sell for $20, you could expect to pay, you know, $7 in excise tax. The minute it leaves your distillery, you need to be planning to send the government $7 for that bottle of vodka. And basically my partner didn't do that for six years. And so uh, there's like a, there's a a debt of uh, just under $100,000. A tax, a tax debt. Well, the insurance for that bond is to cover up to 16000 of that, which is what my name didn't get taken off of. And I got a packet from the collections agency, including these documents from the federal government, the TTB, that made it look like I owed $100,000. And that, that scared me. I mean, I'll be honest. I, I got that information on a a Sunday night, and I had been on a family trip over the 4th of July weekend, and I kind of, I have the thing set up where I can see what mail I'm getting, the informed, uh, USPS informed mail, which I recommend everybody do. So I, I knew that this letter was sitting in my mailbox, but I put it out of my mind because I was really trying to compartmentalize and enjoy my weekend. We had a family weekend, and then Sunday night I get this letter, and you know it's got this information that... This is the money that's owed to the government. And that really uh, was like getting kicked in, in the face because <laughs> um, I thought that I had taken care of everything as far as this business goes. And one of the things that always really, uh, you know, I've, I've t- kind of talked about this before, but when people complain about indie publishing and how much it costs to publish a book, it just makes me want to sort of, you know, smirk at them because they have no clue what it actually takes to start a business. You, typically, you know, I mean, typically, a restaurant or in this case a distillery, like you're looking at fifty thousand dollars just to even get started, you know. And so when when you look at that, you can you can write a book and publish a, a really professional, well-made book for less than five thousand dollars, and the kind of returns you can get if you do your homework, it's unlike any business. In the U.S., I mean, it just—it really is. The only other kind of like business would be software, you know, or designing an app or something. And even that's getting harder and harder. But if you know how to design your app, the the app yourself, and you can do it with no overhead, which is kind of how writing a book is. Um, there's really nothing that compares to that. And so, it—that was a big—that was a big kick, and it made it—it it made it really difficult to do anything. Uh, except think about what the heck I needed to do to fix this problem. And it's still not completely fixed. Uh, I think, you know, I have an offer from the creditor. That the fact is I'm kind of on the hook for this insurance policy. And so one thing that I, I did want to talk about is kind of where I was mentally when this happened. You know, obviously I'm, I'm trying to do some writing. I'm trying to continue working every day. And when you're faced with this sort of Kind of mental weight, at least for me, it's really difficult to do anything else. Like, I want to focus on the problem and fix the problem. Uh, the problem is that I I called the federal agency and nobody returned my calls. I couldn't get hold of anybody. I emailed. You know, it's, it's been a week and a half now, and no one has emailed me back. The only person that responds to me is the uh, creditor. This says I owe them money, <laughs> which makes sense, but this is incredibly frustrating and it's incredibly difficult for me to be able to focus on any creative thing when I've got this problem hanging over my head and I'm not, I just don't have information. So it, it really, like that first Monday when I was processing this, I mean, I was thinking about a lot of things, like what do I need to do? Do I need to, if I owe $100,000, which is a lot of money for me, do I need to declare bankruptcy? Do I need to, like, is my house safe? Um, I've got a child I'm about to put through college. Uh, is that, like, that basically wipes out that. What am I going to do? <laughs> and I was really thinking, I you know, my plan was I'd be able to pay for him to go to college without taking out any any debt, and that would wreck that plan. So the, the one thing I really want to emphasize is that I just, I stopped and I, I, didn't allow myself to get super worried. And the first thing I did was I talked to my wife about it. <laughs> and I've been in this situation before where you're faced with something really difficult and you don't know what to do. And my first impulse is not to communicate with anybody. And it's really important to communicate. You got to talk to somebody. If it's not your, you know, it should be your spouse. That's the person you share your finances with. But if you're not in a relationship, then who do you have that you can talk to? Because for me, like, this amount of money is like, like, that's suicide money. I mean, I I know, you know, you, you look at people that are in incredible financial straits and <clears throat> feel like they don't have any options. And those are the kind of decisions they make, which are not the right kind of decision, obviously. But when you're in a headspace where you feel like you have no options, um, that's tough. And so, you know, fortunately, my, my wife is, you know, we've, we've been through this together. Like when we, when we met, I was pulling myself out of the business. And so I tried to be really open with her about everything that was happening. One thing that we've always done is kept our finances separate. Um, which in this kind of situation is actually a really good thing to do because, uh, you know, if I did have to do something drastic, our, our finances are safe in a a certain way because she's still, her credit score is still safe. She's got money in her name. Um, so we would be okay. And one of the things about starting the business and reaching the point where I did with the business where I knew I had to pull out was when I was owing people money and I was having to make decisions that were this kind of thinking, you know? And I hope that nobody ever, the folks that are listening never go through this, but when you're in a situation where you're thinking about like, what, what am I gonna do if I don't pay this? Or what, you know, you, pri- you always prioritize your rent, you gotta pay your living expenses, but then after that, what do you do? And that's not that's not a way that is fun to think, <laughs> and and so it's just funny because I was reaching a point where actually I almost had everything paid off except for the house, and this thing pops its head up. And it also the other thing it got me really thinking about throughout all this was part of my thought process was okay, I've pay off all debt and then save money, and then potentially I once I have a good enough nest egg write full-time you know we, I've, we've got the baby at home my wife is expecting to be at home probably another three years until the baby is uh i shouldn't say a baby anymore but going to kindergarten then that frees her up to be able to work again and at that point we're a dual income household again and i could maybe look at writing full-time well that plan would go out the window if I hold if I owed hundred thousand dollars to something. <laughs> um, not to say that's insurmountable. If you focus on it, you could do it. I could pay it off. It's like taking a second mortgage, I guess. But it just completely rearranged my thinking about what the next five to ten years of my life were going to be. And that was or just a real like, you know, that just really messed with me for a couple of days. <laughs> and. Obviously, I'm talking about it now, so I'm feeling I'm feeling better. Um, the creditor has offered a settlement, which seemed to, seems like maybe it might be the right way to go. But I have an appointment with a lawyer on Wednesday to talk with them about what the options might be. But I basically just allowed myself to take a deep breath, figure out what's going to happen, pause, and just talk to people that you know. I spent some time just hugging my baby, <laughs> just focus on what's important. You know, here's one thing about, you know, for folks that might be young and just starting out, a credit score is not, does not define you. And even if you had to, you know, my credit's in a really good place now, but if I had to do something like a bankruptcy to cover something like this, like that's not the end of my life, right? That's not, doesn't, that doesn't define me as a person. What's important is my family. What's important is my, you know, my relationships, my friendships, and, um, the problem with this $100,000 was I didn't create that debt. I did not create. I mean, that's the thing I'm still kind of like struggling with here is I didn't create that. The business continued after I had said that I wasn't going to be part of it and continued to create this much debt. So I'll keep you posted on what's happening with that. Obviously, it's weighing on my mind because I keep talking about it, but that made it really difficult to write the last week. <laughs> and and I think when you're facing things like this in your life, expecting yourself to be creative is may, it might be a bridge too far but the other thing that I was thinking about was that I did do some writing and the thing that I was really telling myself as I was writing is I want to escape like write something get in the zone take your mind off this uh, because this thing is really making it hard to think about anything else and so there were a couple sessions I had where I was writing that I really felt like the story was taking me out of my current uh, sort of headspace and that was really helpful. When you're in a situation like this, if you find you're in a, for me it's financial. Financial is a huge trigger for me. There could be other things for other people, but you know, take a breath, pause, think, give yourself time, talk to people, share what you're going through, and you know, the internet is a really awesome resource. You know, I found so much stuff online that was helpful. Um, no matter what your situation is, you know, Google it and you'll find other people that went through it. So um, breaking it into little steps, doing what I could do each day. You know, I can compose an email to a government agency. I can send the email. And then after that, it's kind of out of my hands. I've done everything I can do. And if I at that point they do not respond to me, well, I'm, I'll move forward. To the other thing I can do, which, you know, seek legal counsel, things like that. But focus on what you can control, not what you can't control. And also focus on what you have, not what you don't have. So for me, I have I have a body of work I've created. I have a family that I love. I have a house. I have you know all the things that are fort- that make my life great. I I don't need other things. You know I paid off my truck. I don't need to get another. You know I don't need to get a, a car loan anytime soon. Um, so those are those are positive things to focus on. And if you're trying to do creative work when you're in the midst of this kind of stress, it's hard, you know. So sometimes you got to compartmentalize. you got to, like for me, it's like drill down on, say, the Pomodoro method where for these 30 minutes, I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to worry about any of my problems. I'm going to create a story that transports me and hopefully transports other people, you know, my readers. And it's going to help us both. And that's a really positive thing. And that's what I've really tried to focus on. So, I hope I hope that's helpful. I'm still in the midst of this. I feel like it's important to talk about because I honestly believe, especially for men in who are bearing, like I'm the sole provider for my family, and you know, I don't I'm not kidding when I say this is the kind of thing that I I, I have known people that this drives them to depression, this drives them to substance abuse, or creates a rift in their families that lead to divorce, you know, or or things that are worse and the worst thing you can do is try and close people off or think that you can solve a problem alone without reaching out to other people. And I mean I haven't talked to my wife about my writing like this the effect this has on my writing and she can't help me but she can listen to me. You know, she can give me 15 minutes to do some work and that that all helps, you know, just knowing you've got somebody in your corner I think is is incredibly important. So so anyway I want to touch on that I don't want to go into it anymore but I that's been something that's really been weighing on my mind so I'll, I'll keep you updated on what happened or what what's going to happen um, one thing that was really interesting was the company that holds the uh, so you know how debt works right like you'll the insurance company that had this bond they turn around and sell you know it was less I didn't even find out about it except it turns out the bond had you know since March this has been going on they tried to contact my business partner and he didn't respond. But basically, uh, you know, a person that's owed a debt will turn around and sell it to a collections company. The collections company typically buys it for, you know, pennies on the dollar, depending on what the debt is. And then they will try and do a settlement. This is all kind of based on their expectation to get paid. But it was really interesting to me because they basically made a settlement offer that was a third of the amount that I figured I would owe. So that's kind of good news. And I'm still waiting to see if if that works out. I may, you know, it, it burns me to have to pay this, but also I don't want to get sued. I I don't know. We'll we'll, we'll see, still see what happens. But if you engage with the creditors, you know, you might be surprised with what they with what they offer. Okay. Um, other creative things have been happening. So one thing that's been really cool is on Facebook, a small publisher that I think is doing really cool things, threw out a request for slush pile readers. To they had basically at some point they said they had like posted online that they were accepting submissions, and that got broadcast to a bunch of different websites, and they were just inundated with submissions. And so one of the owners of the publisher posts saying, "Hey, we're looking for ba- we're looking for slush readers. Is anybody interested?" And I volunteered and uh, it's been really interesting to read the submissions to uh that they've been getting one thing that's a little bit unique about this publisher is they're they're pretty new they're also very open to different kinds of work so different genres is uh basically like it's all gonna be genre fiction it's probably all going to be science fiction and fantasy of some kind but as far as whether it's you know weird western or military sf or post-apoc um they're kind of open to a lot of different things as long as it's a good story. But that makes it a little more challenging to, to read and kind of figure out what they might like. And so they sent me, you know, so far I've, uh, I've gotten like 30 submissions to read through. And it's really reminded me uh, of a couple of different things. So I wanted to touch on that. Uh, one thing is, and this is what I've been thinking about as well, like when I look at a manuscript or when I prepare my own manuscripts, Um, Number one is format. So you can tell right off, like, if the author is used to submitting to markets just based on the formatting. You know, are they following standard formatting? Even though I don't think uh, the publisher, you know, specified what kind of formatting they wanted. Uh, If somebody follows standard formatting, which you can find on the CEFWA, if you go to uh, sfwa.org and look up uh, format, manuscript format, You'll find a a document that shows you how to do this. But having the right format makes it much easier to read the manuscript. Uh, The right file format. So PDFs, I've learned, are just super irritating because I can't reformat the document if it's not the way that I would like to read it. And it also makes it hard to read it on my phone if I'm trying to read manuscripts on my phone, things of that nature. Uh, not my favorite, and so people that have sent them as, um, as a PDF file, and then also if it's in the body of an email, that's kind of irritating, because you have to like copy it into a Word file, do your own formatting, copy over the author's name, their info, all that good stuff, and that's just extra time. So for me at least, I think if I was submitting, I would stick to the Word doc attached to the email, you know, maybe if the publisher says they want it in the body of the email, I might also attach it depending on what they what they say specifically that they want. But one thing I would say is like whatever it is they say they want, like do specifically what they want. Um, because doing different things doesn't make you stand out. It just irritates the person who's reading your manuscript. <laughs> um, okay, so once you have that piece, you know, you open the document, you're, you get a look at it. Um, for me, I you know, I, I try and start reading with as blank a concept as possible, what about what it is. And reading reading this stuff has really reminded me like how important it is to hook as soon as possible. So it's really interesting when you're trying to evaluate, you know, 50 pages of a novel, potentially. And so if people are saying the first fifty pages, You might have a cover letter that kind of goes through what the overall arc of the novel is and what the lead-in to a series could be. But then you have to evaluate the author's ability to actually pull that off based on the first 50 pages. And so for me, like a science fiction story, you know, obviously science fiction is my favorite. Um, I'm also reading through some fantasy and stuff like that. I really enjoy fantasy. I, I read a ton of fantasy. But it needs to, to me personally, like if I start reading something, I think it needs to communicate within the first, I would say, paragraph, like what it is. So if it's science fiction, if it's space opera, if it's military SF, if it's, you know, post-apoc, whatever it is, like who is the character, what is the situation they're in, and what is their initial problem? So that doesn't need to be the overarching issue of what's going on, but do they want something? You know, are they face down, you know, are they crawling through the dust, moving to an observation point so they can look at a, you know, a convoy moving through a galactic outpost and they're thirsty, you know, or they're worried about their ammo or they're not sure if the mission is, you know, going to be a success or not. Like, what do they want? What is the concern? What is the, for me, what are the stakes? And you don't have to get, you know, I'm saying the first paragraph and a half, you don't have to get it like right there, but within the first, two paragraphs or so I should know what I'm reading and it's been really interesting to read these different manuscripts and realize that you know I could be 10 pages into a manuscript and not get not get the main character's name uh, not I don't know what anybody wants I don't know why we're doing certain things and uh, it really makes you highly sensitive to um, kind of narrative summary which is the thing we used to say a lot in my author's group where you know you're sort of described it's that kind of info dump you know where you're just like dumping information about the world or you've got two characters talking about the world and there's no tension there's no story there's no plot like what what do these people want why are they here why did the story begin at this point and why is this the most key point of when the story needs to begin you know and and you definitely get a sense of like folks aren't thinking about that. Um, so that's, to me, that's important. Um, you know, one thing as I've read is I've come to realize, like, maybe what's important to me isn't necessarily what's important to the editors. And so I, I've actually tried to come up with kind of a systematic way of evaluating the manuscripts, um, you know, does does the grammar work? Like, does it work on a sentence level? And then from there, is the story interesting? Are there, are there hooks? So maybe it's not working for me, but there's kind of an interesting hook that the editors might be more interested in. You know, we've got like a war between the states or we've got a post-apoc with alien invasion or you know, whatever. And so I'll list out what I think the hook is um, if I can find one. If I read 20 pages and I can't tell what the hook is, then I, I don't, you know, I just say, hey, I, I couldn't figure this out. Um, other things that, that work really well for me are world building through action and character as opposed to that narrative summary I was talking about you know, I I think typically people don't think about their world, you know, in a a way that it's often described in novels. You know, people will describe their world as they experience it. And so as a writer, I try to do world building through the character and how the character interacts with the world around them. I don't stop and talk about the political system in the United States um, when I'm just getting a kid to school, you know, that, that kind of thing. So, how they how they do that, that's kind of like a higher level of, um, I'm excited to see that. I've read a few different you know manuscripts that were military science fiction. And so for me, like, are the military details authentic? So if you mention an army ranger, are you aware of what battalion they were in? Do you know where they served? Do you know what their loadout is? Do you know how they feel about being a ranger? Uh, can you talk about ranger school? Um, if you mention gun, quote unquote, that to me oh, is always kind of a, something that throws me out because as a soldier, you never, I, I guess you could call it a gun if you're making a joke, but that's going to save, that's, that's the tool that's going to save your life. So, you know, it's nomenclature, you know, it's loadout, you know, it's capabilities, you know, it's limitations. Um, you're going to call it by its nomenclature, at least in my experience. And so... You know, you know how many rounds you have down to the last you know, magazine because that's what's gonna save your life. And you probably know how many your buddy is carrying as well. And you know how heavy they are because they're heavy. <laughs> you know what various capabilities they have. If you're carrying explosives, it's the same thing. You know, what are the capabilities and limitations of those explosives um, and how many do you have? Because if you're in a firefight, that's what's gonna save your life. And when I read details in a story that don't pay attention to that that to me just indicates a lack of authenticity by the author and i don't think it's it's that hard to get those things right you know you can talk to people or if you just don't have that information then don't focus on that part of the story and maybe i'm i'm nitpicking about this but to me that's something almost immediately throws me out and I think it's important to get those details right depending on you know there's so much information that's available now so it's not that hard to do it in science fiction you can just create whatever you want to do so it's not like you're arguing with some world war ii nerd about the capabilities of you know a german mauser versus uh an american you know rifle so that that's something i think it's important to get right and i you know read a couple manuscripts that kind of got didn't pay attention to that and so that kind of threw me out I mentioned what does the character want, so knowing what your character wants, and it doesn't have to be like the big want or the big need or the big internal drive, but what do they want on the first, you know, for me it's important to have that on the first page. And then, you know, I think this was a little difficult because the publisher is open to publishing a lot of different things, but like what other things has the publisher uh, done and will will this work fit with it? And I've heard people complain about this before when, you know, in magazines and publishers that they just get stuff where it's obvious the person isn't familiar with what they do at that magazine um, or publisher. And again, I think that's just important. You know, if if you're going to write a query letter to be able to like reference their existing work, like, hey, I think this book is like X thing that you also published because it might be a similar market. You know, and some people were very savvy about that. They mentioned markets. They thought that the book would appeal to. That seems like a good way to connect that shows you're kind of paying attention that you're actually trying to connect with this individual publisher as opposed to uh, just sort of shotgunning out there into into the world, which is tough. But I think it gets back to writing to market. You know, we talk about that in the indie space. You're going to write to meet an audience. Well, when you're writing a book, in a lot of ways or at least you know you're trying to aim it at traditional you're still trying to hit a specific audience and you need to know what that audience is and you need to really nail down on that niche on what what you're trying to achieve and communicate what you're trying to achieve so they know that what you're doing is unique to them which can be tough i think if you're really focused on writing your book or the book of your heart i think it can be tough to focus on what a particular publisher wants but you know, for me, it's kind of like like I know what a tour book is. I know, you know, traditionally, Daw, um, you know, Bane, if I'm, it, it, those things are just kind of ingrained in, in how I approach different kinds of books. I mean, when I was growing up, reading different books, like an ace fantasy book versus a Del Rey versus, you know, an, an Orbit, you get a sense of what each house is doing and what kind of authors they publish and what kind of markets they're reaching. And so that's what you want to focus on, I think, when you're submitting. And I could be totally wrong, because one thing that was really interesting to me was some of the stories that I thought didn't work, uh, when I passed those on to the other editors, they, they liked them. So with everything I've said, just remember that, you know, and I've totally heard this before, that you could submit to a market and it's all about the person that reads the, the story, that it connects with them and you could have five editors and four won't like your story and the fifth one does, and they publish it. So boom, there you go. Same thing with a book, you know? So, but it's been really enjoyable. It's been really, it's actually much more time consuming than I expected it to be, but I I do enjoy doing it and I learn a lot from it. One of the things that has always been, you know, somebody gave me this advice, I think it was Eric Witchy that you learn more from reading other people's work than you do from editing your own. And I think that's completely true. So I would recommend reading the slush pile to anyone who is, whether you think you have your work nailed down or you're just starting out, I think it's a pretty educational thing to do. So anyway, I'll keep you posted about how that goes. All right, so goals for next time. I gotta finish this Nova Blue book. And it's funny, because I I think I am like probably 3,000 words from the end. But with everything else that's happened in the last week, and finishing Eva Destruction, and I don't know, I just, I kind of fell out of the, the loop of writing like I needed to, and it's funny, because Rick Partlow and I were kind of like neck-at-neck neck with finishing books for, uh, for Nova Blue, and then Rick had taken a break for a long time, and I was pushing ahead, and then I stopped moving forward, and boom, he finished his book, so. I need to get mine finished and turned in uh, because honestly, I need to move on to *Spreading Fire*, which is my next book in AN 14. So I I need to get I gotta nail down my deadline with Mal, but uh, that book's gonna need to be done by I want to say at least mid August. So I gotta jump into that and get that ready to go. And then Athon books, who I mentioned earlier, threw out a like an opportunity to submit 50 pages on a project and pitch a series to them no real timeline on that but i don't know i wouldn't be able to write anything until next year anyway because i got to finish my series for an 14 but it's a pretty interesting opportunity so i need to figure figure out what might work with that and then later this week uh which is exciting i'm going to be appearing on the writer's journey on july 18th to talk about balancing writing and family so i'm excited to do that and uh yeah, it should be a good time. So I'm not going to make any promises about getting podcasts out on time. I really hope to. <laughs> I keep hoping to, to make it weekly. But unless I can you know stay up till uh, 2 a.m., it's pretty hard to, to do it. So we'll see how, uh, how things work out. It's now 42 a.m. And, yeah, I'm tired. So <laughs> thank you for listening. And I appreciate everyone who's been following the podcast and supporting it. And I will keep uh, keep kicking them out. So if there's something you'd like to hear about, please let me know. And if you ever have any questions or need more info about anything, just email me at james at jamesarron.net. Until then, thank you for listening, and uh, I'll see you next time. Later.